0: And as we look at Leviticus 18, again, a reminder for those of you who may be new to our church or forgot, uh, we're dealing with some more uh, mature uh, themes as we go through this section, as we talk about holiness and sexuality in the Pentateuch, and uh, we're not going to get very far this morning. (laughs) We're going to kind of talk about some things we began last week, and uh, we're not going to get very far This morning we're we're taking things kind of slow, and and I'm okay with that. Hope hope you are too. Uh, But one of the things we're going to be talking about is uh, same sex—what our culture calls same sex marriage—and we're going to kind of begin talking about that at the latter portion of our message today, and then a lot next week. And so um, you can decide if you're a parent if, if that's something you want your children to be thinking about, you know, the, the reality is uh, th- it's where our culture is, and our children are, are hearing about it or thinking about it. Uh, our society is is literally restructuring itself, uh, redefining itself, and so I think it's important, as, as Flannery O'Connor says, we have to push as hard against the age as the age pushes against us, not in a, a combative way, but in a sense of as our, our children are being... And ourselves are being taught one view of sexuality and, and how we are to think about that, we need to very confidently express what we believe God's Word teaches about that. And so that's what we will be doing uh, this morning and in the weeks to come. And again, you can kind of evaluate what you and, and your children need to be thinking about in that area as well. But we want to communicate these things uh, in a very winsome, loving Way and yet at the same time, very clear and uh, confidently as we think about what God's word says. So, if you would stand with me in honor of the Lord as we read his word together, I'm going to be reading portions of Leviticus 18. And uh, portions of Leviticus 18, we looked at the whole chapter two weeks ago, and we're going to read the kind of the portions that we're going to be beginning to deal with uh, this morning. So, at the end of the first paragraph, God had told the people, look, these are my statutes and rules. A person does them. He lives by them. Then verse 6, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I'm the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, Or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter in law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. You shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal. To lie with it, it is perversion. Then he talks about how the people before them had done these things. Then he says in verse 30, So keep my charge, never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning and father we do ask your special grace upon us as we talk through these things we pray that in your grace we'd be obedient to you and pray you're enabling the work of your holy spirit and pray this in your son jesus's name amen when i was in elementary school my neighbor invited me to his birthday party And his parents kind of talked to my parents, told them what we'd be doing, the the movie we'd be watching, and they asked my parents if that was okay. And my parents kind of hesitated for a second, talked to me, and said, okay, I think it's okay. Now, I had lived a very sheltered movie life as an elementary age student. Uh, I was not allowed to watch the Back to the Future movies. I wasn't allowed to watch Indiana Jones, and all my friends were able to see those movies. And so I had kind of a a sheltered movie experience. Most of my movies were, you know, Disney movies. Saw a lot of Herbie growing up as an elementary school student. Older people are laughing a little bit, know what that means. So I went to my neighbor's birthday party, and we began watching this movie, and it wasn't like a, I don't even remember that much about the movie. It wasn't like wildly inappropriate or anything like that, but it was certainly an older Themed movie than what I was used to. For example, there were two characters in the movie who were romantically interested in one another. And even though as an elementary age kid, my understanding of some of those things was was pretty limited. I, I understood that there was something going on that was that was off. I understood that these these, these people were not married and yet were acting like they were married. They were in some sort of physically intimate relationship, and I was uncomfortable with it. As I watched the movie, I didn't have this thought. I didn't think, well, man, why have mom and dad not told me about this? Or why have not mom and dad not let me see movies like this? Because this seems pretty appealing to me. I, I kind of remember thinking the exact opposite. I remember watching the movie and seeing this relationship and and being troubled by it, by thinking, this is this is kind of sad. I, I felt bad for the people who were in this relationship. To me, and maybe it was because I was an elementary-aged kid and hadn't been immersed in the culture as much as I would be in years hence from then, but there, there was a sense of, of sorrow because I recognized that that relationship was kind of a a pale comparison, a cheap imitation of the relationship that I knew my parents had and other people I knew who were married. To me, it seemed a very, very cheap counterfeit to the type of relationship that my parents had. I can remember thinking that. What I hope happens as we go through Leviticus 18 this morning and in the coming weeks. I hope we gain a sense of appreciation for the the beauty of what God has created in sexuality. The the picture that he has designed to be seen in a a marriage relationship. The way that he has provided us a means, whether we're single or married, the way that he has provided us a means to worship him in this aspect of our life and, and the beauty of that. And as we look at Leviticus 18 and particularly these these types of sexual relationships that God prohibits, I hope we see in them the phoniness of them, the counterfeit nature, the idea that this this is a cheap substitute for what God has created marriage to be. And I hope we, as as a church, as individuals, reject the counterfeit and, and cling to God in worship. Now, for those of you who are younger, I mentioned a couple weeks ago you know this, this word "sexuality." For some of you say, Boy, I kind of have a vague understanding maybe of what that means. Mom and Dad and I have talked about it a little bit, or you know uh, someone my my grandparents have, have, have kind of explained some things to me. Here's what I, I mean when I use the word sexuality," and, and this is just kind of a basic level understanding, there's way more to it than this, but when I'm, when I'm using the word sexuality, I'm, I'm talking about something that God has given us to glorify Him. Sexuality is something that God has given us to glorify Him, and it's, it's that thing that God has given us that allows a, a husband and a wife to want to be physically close to one another. That, that's part of what sexuality is. It's something that God has given us to, to glorify Him, and it's that, that thing that allows a, a husband and wife to, to want to be physically close to one another. Way more to it than that. Your parents would love to talk with you after church, but, but that's kind of a, a beginning understanding, right? Beginning understanding. Something that God has given us to glorify Him, whether it's single or married, but it's that thing that God has given us that allows us to want to be physically close to our husband or our wives. Now, here's, here's kind of the main point that we've been, been talking about as we've talked about holiness. What is holiness? We've seen as we've talked about holiness that without holiness, and that is separating ourselves from sin and consecrating ourselves to God, without holiness we will not see God. In the book of Leviticus, that the people are in relationship with a holy God, and we see as we go through Leviticus that without holiness they, they can't be in relationship with God. And the same is true for you and me. Now, now, what is holiness? Holiness is, is essentially love of God. It's, it's devotion to God. And so as we love God, we, we separate ourselves from sin. We, we devote ourselves to him. And if we want to know how holy, I, how holy am I, the answer is, well, however devoted I am to God. The degree of my holiness is the degree to which I'm devoted to God, can't consecrated to God, set apart to him. Now, How can we receive holiness? Well, we receive this holiness by by faith in Jesus Christ. We recognize that we're sinners, not holy, and we recognize that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, that he was completely righteous, that he died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, and I can... Place my faith in him and receive his righteousness. And as I receive his righteousness, I'm transformed. I I have the desire to grow in holiness. If I have no desire to grow in holiness, my life hasn't been transformed by the gospel, not saved. Without holiness, it's, it's impossible to be in relationship with God. Now what about in the area of sexuality? Here's kind of what we began talking about two weeks ago. Holiness and sexuality is fueled by love of God. You see, holiness and sexuality doesn't begin with a bunch of rules. Okay, I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I, I have to do this, and I, I have to wear this uh, length uh, skirt, and I need to do uh, this in my relationships with uh, other people. It, it doesn't begin with that. Holiness and sexuality is, is fueled by love of God, by devotion to God. And as I, I love God, that expresses itself in my relationships with others. So, holiness and sexuality is fueled by God, and that holiness and sexuality is expressed in my love toward others, so it affects how I treat my wife. It affects, if I'm single, how I treat other brothers and sisters in Christ. It affects how I treat strangers. It affects all aspects of how I relate to other people. Holiness and sexuality is fueled by love for God, expressed in our love toward others. It brings life and blessing. Now, here are some of the principles that we began looking at, and I, I kind of want to remind you of a couple and then expand on some that we went through kind of quickly. The first was this the first principle we considered is this sexual ethics, uh, sexual ethics in the Pentateuch are grounded in the one flesh relationship that God creates in Genesis. So, in other words, we don't come to Leviticus 18 and suddenly, all of a sudden, there's some rules about sexuality. Sexual ethics in the Pentateuch begins in Genesis 2. It begins as we see God creating this, this one-flesh relationship. And this, this one-flesh relationship we see in Genesis is designed to teach us about God. Two who are different become one. This, this husband and this wife... Come into this this one flesh relationship, and as they come into this this one flesh relationship, we see something about the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel two becoming one. And the level of our agreement with that picture, this picture of the gospel, is, is our reflection of, of worship. It's a reflection of our worship. A faithfulness to that relationship that 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 picture that God is trying to create allows us to to worship Him. And again, that's whether we're single, it's whether we're married. Our our desire to be faithful to that picture that God is creating is, is a means of us worshiping Him. So that's the first principle. Second principle related to that, sexuality is to be expressed in the context of a permanent marriage relationship between one man and one woman. We'll continue to unpack that as we go through this series. A third principle is this, sexual morality. Sexual morality is based not on the decrees of culture, but on submission to a holy God. Look at your text with me, if you would, now in Leviticus 18. As we look at those, those first four verses, it becomes very clear that the people of Israel are not to base their sexual conduct on where they came from. He said to, to them, don't do like they did in the land of Egypt, verse 3. And it's not their sexual conduct is not to be based upon the mores of the place that they're going. Don't do like they did, don't, and you shall not do in the future as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. Don't walk in their statutes. Instead, God tells his people, their conduct is to be based upon his statutes, his rules as a holy God. Follow my rules, keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. So as you think about this picture that I've given you of my relationship with you, marriage is this picture of God's relationship with his people. As as you think about how to conduct yourself, keep that that picture in mind. You you operate in obedience to me. The people in the land of Egypt, the people in the land of Canaan, are both engaging in in sexual practices that distort the image of that I'm trying to give you they distort the the sermon that I'm trying to preach says God concerning marriage reject those things fourth principle is this A sexual purity is the only way to experience the fullness of God's blessing in this life A sexual purity that is conducting ourselves in obedience to God in this area of life is the only way to experience the fullness of God's blessing in this life. And this is a principle that, that cuts against the grain of our culture in, in so many ways. And our culture makes a, a, an argument contrary to this in almost every way possible, right? But what does verse 5 say? You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I'm the Lord, I'm Yahweh. I think God has instinctively wired us to understand the, the importance of covenant love, right? On my, on my wedding ring, on the inside of my wedding ring, Whitney engraved uh, the, wor- the words, uh, Song of Solomon 8.6. that that Bible reference. What does Song of Solomon 8.6 say? It says, watch out, buddy. No, uh, Song of Solomon. It's actually much more beautiful. It says, Song of Solomon 8.6, it's a, a young woman speaking to her beloved. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart. As a seal upon your arm. What is, what is she saying? A seal was something that identified ownership. It identified relationship. And so a, a person would put their seal on a document and it indicated this, this document is, are my words. It's identified with me. And so she's saying, look, I, I want to be, I don't want to be involved in some casual fling with you. I don't want our, our relationship to be outside the, the bounds of covenant love. I want a, a covenant commitment from you. The The type of, sexual relationship that has been described in Song of Solomon, she says, I want that with you, but I don't want it outside the boundaries of marriage. I I want to be in covenant relationship with you. And then the verse goes on, it says, it says, "Do, do this, set me as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Or as the Beatles put it, can't buy me love, right? It's ridiculous. You try to offer someone money for this type of love, you'd be considered foolish, despicable. But only in this type of love, only in this this covenant relationship, this covenant commitment, can this this type of love that can withstand floods, survive. What is God's message to us throughout Scripture? He says, I've created this, this picture, this picture of, of marriage, and within the, the context of this relationship, there is to be covenant commitment. And only where this covenant commitment exists can, can you see the faithfulness that is supposed to exist between God and His people. And it's only in that type of relationship that you're going to experience the fullness of joy and blessing if you're going to get married. I'm reading a book, just started reading a book uh, by Tim Keller. It it started off, started reading it yesterday, started off a little, I was a little concerned by it. It started off a little negative. In fact, I was sitting next to Whitney and I I said, Whitney, what do you think of this sentence? This is the on the on the first page of the book. Uh, Tim Keller writes, "No marriage I know, more than a few weeks old, could be described as a fairy tale come true." So, what do you think, Whitney? Fairy tale come true? You know, what do you think? She was just laughing, so I'm not exactly sure. No, I think that that seemed a little negative to me. I, I would, I would certainly. Uh, not describe it as fairy tale in the sense of something unreal, but certainly um, uh, marriage has met more than all my expectations for what a a beautiful relationship could be. But so it starts off a little negative. I was like, I don't know about this, but then Tim Keller says some some really good things. And one of the things he he says in this first chapter, he's talking about the the beauty of, of covenant commitment. He talks about how Despite what we've heard, despite what our culture has told us about how negative marriage is, he says the percentage of people who say they're very happy in their marriage is actually high, about 60 to 61 to 62 percent. Two-thirds of those, this is very interesting. Listen to this. Two-thirds of those in unhappy marriages out there will become happy within five years if people stay married and do not get divorced. Isn't that interesting? Two-thirds of people who are right now say, oh, I'm in an unhappy marriage, they're going to be in a happy marriage if they they stay faithful to the covenant commitment they've made. One secular sociologist said, the benefits of divorce have been oversold in our culture. He goes on, he says, during the last two decades, the great preponderance of research evidence shows that people who are married consistently show much higher degrees of satisfaction, for example, than those who are just living with a partner it reveals that most people are happy in their marriages and most of those who are not and don't get divorced eventually become happy. It's very interesting, right? It's not what our culture has told us, but what we see in Scripture is that sexual purity, whether married, divorced, single, making that commitment to live in agreement with the picture that God has created about what marriage is and where sexuality is to be expressed It's the only way to experience the fullness of God's blessing in this life. One of the things I'm going to encourage us to do as we go through this series is is to memorize God's Word, and I I don't think there is anyone here who would say that they perfectly are obedient to God in every aspect of this this area in their life and always thinking rightly. Proverbs 5, I think, is a a great chapter. I encourage you to, to memorize Proverbs chapter 5 because I think it illustrates this principle so beautifully. One of the books I was reading talked about this this uh, chapter is just a great chapter to read through with someone, or to memorize as you're counseling yourself or others. Um, I'm trying to memorize through it. You can you can quiz me on it uh, to keep me accountable, but encourage you to memorize something like Proverbs chapter five that just describes the the beauty of covenant faithfulness and the danger of not being faithful in covenant relationship. Here's the fifth principle, and we're not going to get uh, all the way through this this morning. Uh, the fifth principle is this. Sexual partners for the marriage relationship are limited by God in His holiness. Let me say that again. Sexual partners for the marriage relationship are limited by God. and They're limited by God in His holiness. Now, what does this mean? Some people say, well, okay, if if it's true that uh, sexuality is reserved in terms of expressing sexuality, acting on sexuality, it's reserved for the marriage relationship, well, then uh, um, as long as I get married then I can can express that with with whomever I I wish, as long as I I marry them. And what we see in Leviticus 18 is that is not true. God limits marriage partners to protect the the picture that he's trying to convey in this relationship, to protect the the message of the sermon he's trying to proclaim. There are things that are described in this section of Scripture that are all attested to in the Egyptian and and Canaanite cultures. So in this text, these verses prohibit incest, they prohibit adultery, polygamy, homosexuality, bestiality. All these things are prohibited in this passage. And all of these things we see examples of in either the Egyptian or the Canaanite cultures or both. So, for example, in the Egyptian culture, you see examples at this time of of brothers and sisters marrying. In the Canaanite culture, we see examples of things that even on a Sunday where we're kind of dealing with some more mature things, we can't even talk about all the things they're engaged in in some of the religious practices. We see uh, prostitution, we see um, bestiality, we see homosexuality, we see all these things taking place even in the context of what they would call worship. And all these things that both the Egyptians and the Canaanites engage in, all these things do what? They, they under, undermine that fundamental message that God is trying to convey about himself and his people in the marriage relationship. You see, God is, again, trying to convey in the marriage relationship uh, to becoming one, uh, the, the human and the divine b- becoming one through God's grace. And as we look at this passage and we see... The limitations on marriage, we kind of see two things. First of all, we see we can't marry ourselves. Instead, we see we have to marry someone else who's been designed for us. So, in other words, you can't marry yourself. You can't marry people who are, who are close to you. You have to marry someone who's been designed for you. You can't marry yourself because that doesn't convey the relationship of the idea of being in relationship with another. Whenever I was about four years old, we moved to San Antonio, Texas. And my, my parents moved in this new house with me, and I think my, my younger brother was, was born at the time. And we moved into this house, and it's, it's pretty lonely. Pretty lonely for me as this, this four-year-old kid. and Didn't have any friends. Walked in the backyard one day kind of lonely, no one to play with, and I, I saw this, this brick and a piece of rope. Just kind of get yourselves ready. This gets pathetic. I tied, I tied a, the rope around this, this brick and just began walking around the yard with it, talking to it. And my parents said, Daniel, what are you doing? And I said, this is my pet brick. And that's the story of how I got a dog. Um... <laughs> You can't be in a relationship with a brick. You can't talk to yourself and call that a relationship with someone else. That's not what a relationship is. And it's even more true in the marriage relationship. You can't can't marry yourself. And so as you look at this, look at the text with me. And as you notice, there's this word that appears over and over again. And you probably noticed it because I had to say it a bunch of times. It's the word nakedness. And nakedness there is a euphemism for intimacy, which, which is also a euphemism, I suppose. But Anyway, you see here that as God talks about this, this intimacy, He's saying, look, you can't be intimate with someone who is close to you. Verse 6, you can't approach any of your close relatives to uncover nakedness. Now, now, why is that? Because when there is a one flesh relationship, it's, it's two becoming one. And when they become one, those who are in that relationship or close to that relationship now are, are part of that, that same oneness. So... You can't approach your stepmother's nakedness. Why? Verse 8, it's your father's nakedness. You can't approach the nakedness of your sister. Why? It's it's your nakedness. You can't approach your son's daughter. You can't approach your your daughter-in-law. Why? It's it's your own nakedness. In other words, um, you have your father, and your father gets married to your mother, and they have you. There's this one-flesh relationship. You're the product of it. And now... Your mother dies, your parents divorce, and your father marries another woman, then he dies. You can't be in a relationship with that, that stepmother. Why? Because she and your father were a one flesh relationship, and they're, they're, they're one. It's too close. You can't marry yourself. Your father and mother get married, they have you and your sister, and, and there can't be a relationship between you and your sister. Why? Because your mom and dad are one flesh. It's a one flesh relationship. You're both a product of that one flesh relationship. Too close. In fact, even as I'm saying these things, some of you are just, natu- you're just instinctively revolted by the idea, right? I think that's God ingrained. When that repulsion isn't there, it's a result of the fall. You marry someone who's, who's not yourself, who's not part of that, that close relationship. And then secondly, you marry someone who's designed for you. So you marry someone who's different, but at the same time designed to be in relationship with you. God is designed to be in relationship with his people a man is designed to be in a relationship with a woman. You can't marry yourself. You marry someone who's different but designed for you. So what's prohibited? Adultery It's prohibited. Why? They're in a one-flesh relationship with someone else. For you to enter in that one-flesh relationship destroys the picture that God is trying to create. Homosexuality, bestiality, um, the, those things are, are things that that distort that that picture that do, God is trying to create. The failure on the part of the Canaanites is why they're being vomited out of the land. They didn't have the Mosaic law. They weren't held accountable for some of the other violations in the same way as they're held responsible for their sexual idolatry. Their sexuality, that the Canaanite sexuality, listen to this because it might sound very familiar their sexuality became about self-worship and fulfillment, not about the glory of God. And brothers and sisters, that is the root of all sexual sin. Ed Shaw, I'm going to be referring to him a lot uh, next week, but he wrote a book called Same-Sex Attraction in the Church, and he's a person who says that he would he would say he struggles with same-sex attraction, yet he wants to live a, a life in obedience to God. Let me read you something that he, he, he wrote. First of all, he quotes another author talking about the, the totality of the picture of Scripture. He says the entire narrative works with this this complementarity so that a male plus female marriage is a signpost or a signal about the goodness of the original creation and God's intention for the eventual new heavens and new earth. And then Shaw himself goes on to write, he says, do you get the point of all this biblical imagery? Marriage between a man and a woman, that is, complementary union of sexual difference is central to the very wiring of God's plan for the universe. From its beginning and into eternity. So that if you change some, some parts in that, in that relationship, you replace a man or a woman, you're interfering with, with what, where God has said his world is heading to the unity and difference in heavenly marriage of the divine and the human. This is an important thing, brothers and sisters. What does our Canaan tell us? The Israelites are getting ready to go in this land. And the Canaanites are going to expose them to some, some terrible practices. And yet as the Israelites are exposed to these, these terrible things, this distortion of the image that God is trying to create, there's going to be there's going to be an enticement to that. Some of the, the, the things that they engage in for their crop worship to to, to kind of begin planting the crops and to continue to ensure fruitful harvests of the things that they engage in, the, the sexual practices, it is going to be enticing to the Israelites. What is, what is our Canaan? There are so many things that, that I want to talk about, so many things we should talk about. But one of the things that I think we're forced to talk about based upon where we are in our culture is the idea of same-sex attraction in in our culture, in the church. In fact, we need to talk about changing how we respond to same-sex attraction in the church, not in terms of what we say about the rightness or wrongness of expressing ourselves rightly in sexuality, but thinking how we respond to people. And again, this is not a message, this is not kind of a, a, a side trail I would go down or focus on this in more depth, Ten years ago, it's not something I would focus on maybe even five years ago, but based upon where we are today, we're going to spend some time this morning and next week, by God's grace, talking about this. Ten years ago, if you came to me and you said, Daniel, I'm struggling in my marriage, I'm thinking about getting a divorce, I don't love my wife, what should I do? I would have some things to say. I think a person in that situation would say, I know my church, I know what my church teaches about this, I know my church loves me, I know that they're going to help me through this. Ten years ago, if you came and you said, "You know, I'm just in this situation where I'm struggling with lust, I'm struggling with pornography, I need to talk to someone, I think ten years ago, a person in that situation would know, hey, my church cares for me, they know about how to help me, and they'll help me through this. There are so many ways that we can deviate from God's picture for what sexual, sexuality is supposed to look like. So many ways, both by nature and by our choices, that, that we are um, we're fallen. Ten years ago, if, if you were struggling with same-sex attraction, I wouldn't have known what to say. I'm not sure a person, maybe even today, who would say, well, this is something that I've, I've always, you know, since I, since I began being attracted sexually to at other people, it's always, been, it's always been this way. I'm not sure a person who feels that way would necessarily feel like the church is, is where they can turn to. That's a problem, right? And we as a church need to, to think through that because we are living in a, an amazing point in, in human history and in, or certainly in, in North American culture history. Al makes the distinction between a, a moral shift and a moral revolution. A moral shift and a moral revolution. In a moral shift, we just kind of change the boundaries a little bit. So, for example, you used to say, you know, intimacy before marriage that uh, that that's that's a wrong thing a moral shift is saying you know what who cares you know it's it's not a great thing but you know I'm not going to say anything that's that's a moral shift our culture hasn't gone through a moral shift or in terms of sexuality it's gone through a, a sexual revolution whenever i was in high school i can remember people in positions of authority telling me not just it's not that bad to be in, engaged in intimacy before marriage, they encouraged it. In other words, it was a moral good to pursue that. And anyone who told you differently was telling you something morally wrong. That's a moral revolution. When it comes to the issue of of homosexuality, despite what it may feel like, That's not where the revolution began. In other words, it's not homosexuality that's all all of a sudden come on the scene and destroying marriage. We've began to take an ax to the roots of marriage long before in our culture, right? What's taken place, though, in terms of what we think about homosexuality and same-sex attraction, it has been a moral revolution. A very prominent example is, is Barack Obama, I, I think, in this issue. You know, in 2008, as he was running for president, he told Rick Warren, look, marriage is, I, I believe marriage is between one man and one woman. Earlier, he had said that uh, he believed that society needed to create a, a, a special place for this unique, He re- called a unique relationship between a man and a woman. short time later, by 2012, he had said that he believed that marriage... Between uh, two men or two women should be recognized as as a true marriage. Whenever the Supreme Court uh, decided to legalize same-sex marriage, he called it justice that had arrived like a thunderbolt. You see, you see that, you see that that's not just a shift; that that's a revolution, just illustrated in one man's articulation of this of this area. Before here's what's good. Now the, the exact opposite is, is what's right and morally good. He quoted Justice Kennedy describing ripples of hope cascading outward and changing the world. That that's, that's a revolution. What before had been seen as wrong was now seen as moral good, and those who opposed this moral good were, were now in the wrong. It was a morally wrong. Where our culture by and large today is to, to oppose things like homosexual marriage is to engage in What's morally wrong? So how do we as a church respond to that? How do we, cha- how do we respond to a culture that has changed at, at breakneck speed? There's several ways, right? Some wrong, some good. One is just to, to deny the reality of the change. Or to respond in in anger at at the reality of the change. Kind of denial, anger, to be very um, antagonistic in how we respond. And and I don't think that's a very biblical way to respond. I would say that that response actually has hurt our brothers and sisters in Christ who may struggle in this area. Brother and sister in Christ struggles with same-sex attraction, turns to the church. How should I respond? The church denies that, that it's even a reality. Just decide to do something different. Another way that we can respond, and we're going to talk more about this this next week, we can, we can decide that we've been wrong about what the Bible says. And that's where uh, many of my my friends, people my age, are, are kind of, it's it shocked me how many of the people I grew up with in the church are, are coming to that conclusion. Well, I, I guess what we thought the Bible said What was wrong. As our culture changes, as we see this new reality, I guess what the Bible has said about this this issue is wrong. A third way to respond is to to turn afresh to Scripture, and it's what I'm going to encourage, obviously, and to lovingly and yet very clearly think about what God says about this area and, and commit ourselves to it. To lovingly call our brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever issues we're struggling with, to lovingly call all of us to the difficult road of discipleship. We're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. And what are we celebrating as we celebrate the Lord's Supper? We're remembering the the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, in his obedience to the Father, did not follow an easy road. And yet he he followed a road that led to eternal glory and our salvation. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake. Whether you struggle with just not liking the person you've been married to, whether you struggle with same-sex attraction, whether you struggle with the, the desire to commit adultery or the desire to engage in lust whatever issue it is that you struggle with make no mistake the, the path to holiness is not an easy path the path of discipleship is a is a path marked by death death to self and yet it is the only path that brings joy and as, as Kevin Shaw, again, a believer who struggles with same-sex attraction, says, our, our culture doesn't make obedience to God seem plausible anymore. And what we as a church, to all of our brothers and sisters who struggle in whatever area, we must make the Christian life seem plausible. The path that God calls us to seem joyful. I want to invite the men to begin to make their way forward to pass out the elements of the Lord's Supper, as they do, I want you to listen to what Psalm 19 says. And I want you to believe this to be true. The psalmist says in Psalm 19, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And listen to what Psalm 19, verse 10 says about God's word. And this is what all of us must confess if we're going to pursue God and holiness in all areas of our life. Psalm 19, verse 10 says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. God's word is... Is good, And God gives us these instructions, these rules, these statutes, these ordinances, not to cause our lives to be miserable, but because in obeying, obedient to him, there is great joy. As we say, okay, I'm going to reject the message of the Egyptians. I'm going to reject the message of the Canaanites. I'm going to believe that what God says about sexuality is true. I'm going to believe what he says about this marriage relationship is true, that is a picture of his His uh, love for his church and the same faithfulness, the same covenant love that's to exist in this this marriage relationship. This becomes a picture of God's love for me and I'm going to be committed in faithfulness to loving and worship him. As we remain committed to to that imagery and living that out in our lives through holiness, there is going to be joy. Moreover, verse 11 of Psalm 19 by them, by your rules, is your servant warned. or cautioned against paths that lead to death. And in keeping them, there's great reward. What a beautiful promise. I look forward to continue to, to unpack that with you next week and the weeks to come. I'm going to invite the men to, to begin to pass out the elements as they do so. As they do so, let me encourage you to do this let me encourage you to to ask God just in the quietness of your heart as we partake of this supper together, God please reveal to me those areas in my life in which I'm not devoted to you what areas of my life am I not devoted to you, where am I not holy and God in your grace please change me that's what I want us to pray together now again, as we partake of the Lord's Supper we're proclaiming that we are part of a body, recognizing that we have a responsibility to one another in this endeavor. I encourage you as you pray to come to the Lord if there's areas that he reveals to you that, you're, that you'd be willing by God's grace to pursue others to help you be obedient to God in all these areas. Let's pray. Father, help us as we partake of your Lord's Supper together in a moment. And now reveal those things to us as we contemplate the death of your son Jesus.